the lights dim, a hush descends, the play begins, and then... Noise in a theatre can be off-putting for both audiences and actors alike. But the convention that we should watch theatre in silence is a relatively modern one. And as Hannah Simpson of the University of Oxford argues, it's an etiquette that may make theatre a less inclusive place than it could be. This podcast was recorded before a notably quiet audience during the series Late Summer Lectures 2017, organised by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. In 2015, Benedict Cumberbatch asked that fans refrain from filming him in the Hamlet at the Barbican Centre. He complained, I can see cameras, I can see red lights in the auditorium, it's blindingly obvious, it's mortifying, and there's nothing less supportive or enjoyable as an actor on stage. Later that year, Oliver Berkman penned an entire Guardian editorial on the horror of noisy fellow spectators. Recalling how loudly his audience neighbours were eating Twizzlers during a performance, he admits, I enacted the standard British person protocol for such situations. First, get angry but do nothing. Finally, become gripped with white-hot rage, forecasting a meaningful glance in the wrongdoer's direction. Fortunately, my not-so-British companion escalated the matters to a shh. Then, when that failed to work, she informed an usher at the intermission who lectured the noisemaker so forcibly that recalling it still gives me a frankly troubling thrill. (laughs) The modern theatre spectator is expected to keep still and silent while watching a play, as a mark of respect for the work and the actors. So keen is our sense of the need for this respectful silence, and so quick are we to condemn those who contravene established theatre etiquette, that the modern spectator can easily forget that the concept of the quiet audience is both a recent and a historically atypical one. We'll explore this relatively recent shift to the quiet audience in a moment, but for now I want to briefly sketch out one consequence of this new ideology. The cult of the quiet audience presents a challenge, and sometimes an insurmountable challenge, to the neurodivergent spectator. By the neurodivergent spectator, I mean someone whose cognitive and consequently physical functioning may mean that she cannot guarantee that her body will remain passively quiet during the length of a performance. People with autism, Tourette's syndrome, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. Partially as a result of the stringent policing of quiet audience etiquette, individuals with disability have significantly lower rates of arts attendance than others. If the light from a phone or the rustle of sweet papers so disrupts the pious spectator or the dedicated actor, then what of the more pronounced but involuntary noises and movements of the neurodivergent spectator? The verbal tick or tremors of the person with Tourette's syndrome, the repetitive tapping of the individual with OCD, the self-comforting rocking of the child with autism. This lecture will address three questions. When, how and why did we establish the cult of the quiet audience? That's one question. How does this new modern focus on the quiet audience etiquette prevent neurodivergent individuals from accessing theatre spaces? And how would re-establishing a relaxed audience change the theatre auditorium as a public sphere? That is, how would it change all spectators' experience of gathering together to watch a performance? What would it change about how we conceive the theatre as an artistic medium, as a live, embodied, communal event and its value as such? Part 1. The Historically Noisy Audience 
Tracing the behaviour of spectators is notoriously difficult for theatre historians. Records of audience behaviour tend to be sparse and informal, and of course there's no such thing as a typical spectator. So what one source observes about one audience, or even one audience member on one particular night, may not be widely representative. However, we can at least say that spectators at earlier European theatre certainly seem to have been, generally speaking, far more noisily engaged than our own 21st century audience. Classical Greek and Roman spectators could throw stones at the stage in disapproval. The groundlings in the pit of Shakespeare's Globe verbalised their displeasure and complaints loudly and engaged in repartee with the actors. For many centuries, the European audience reserved the right to cry down a play they disliked, stamping and shouting until the actors stopped performing. This mode of behaviour was in fact legally recognised as late as 1907, following the riots that disrupted J.M. Sings, the playboy of the Western world, in the Abbey Theatre. Justice Wall told the Dublin court trying these rioters that, quote, the rights of an audience in the theatre are very well defined. They might cry down a play which they dislike or hiss and boo the actors, as long as such conduct was not premeditated. Restoration theatre in the 17th and 18th century allowed wealthier patrons to pay a higher price to sit upon the stage itself, fully lit and visible and audible to all. 19th century star actors often had to wait after their entrance for excited applause and whispers to die down before they began to speak, and might return for a, a curtain call in the middle of an act after playing a particularly strong scene, following which spectators could even come forward to the stage to praise the actors face to face before allowing the play to continue. Indeed, such noisy audience engagement was often actively scripted. Ernest Stern recalls, as a teenager in Vienna in the 1890s, receiving free tickets to the Imperial Theatre in return for acting as a member of the CLAC, that is, a group of organised applauders common in European theatre at the time. The actor, in Stern's example, the actor playing Mercutio, would pay the CLAC leader a fee and request certain applause. Stern remembers his leader's instructions for that particular run. Listen carefully. After Mercutio seen with Juliet's nurse, we need a short but sensational applause. The applause after Mercutio's story of the fairy Mab has to be roaring and intermingled with cheers. After Mercutio's death, we need something discreet. A few deep-voiced bravos we do, considering the situation. Audience noise was then not only permitted, but actively encouraged and even scripted in earlier instantiations of European theatre. Where today we regard a noisy spectator as not paying respectful attention to the play before them, Historically, a spectator's noise was a vital sign of their engagement with the performance. So when did the theatre audience fall silent and why? A few notable events across the early 20th century Europe stand out. In 1907, August Strindberg founded the Intima Theatre in Stockholm, Sweden, and in 1908 he announced in the memorandum to the members of the Intimate Theatre that he had banned the sale of alcohol, intermissions and places for applause to avoid breaking the audience's focus cheerful, standard cheerful Strindberg with no alcohol and no applause. The following year, Stockholm newspapers published a sponsored announcement the day before the reopening of the Royal Dramatic Theatre, urging the public not to clap in the new theatre as they ordinarily did at the end of the scenes, but only at the end of the acts. Both instances of silencing the early 20th century Stockholm audience can be read as part of the modern theatre's new focus on the play, on the dramatist's work, rather than the spectacle of the performance itself. Martin Puckner describes this new focus on play's text, what he calls, quote, an intense concentration on works that conform to the modernist ideal of difficulty, 
as a defining feature of the arrival of literary modernism in the theatre and a crucial catalyst to the quiet audience. To allow for this ideal of intense and so necessarily quiet audience concentration, audience noise was progressively silenced and theatre became an increasingly upper-class only event. By the 1920s, the New York Times observed the newly, quote, restrained, sedate nature of the audience in the period, formerly rowdy audience members having, quote, either learned better manners or betaken themselves elsewhere. And the actor Louis Jouvet mourned the loss of, quote, the friendliness of the spectator and the unfamiliar stillness that settled on the auditorium. However, despite the marked quieting of the audience in the early 1900s, World War II re-established theatre as a mixed-class activity, and throughout the 1940s and 1950s, theatre-going became again a profoundly social and noisy activity in England. Wartime food restrictions and curfews restricted the other leisure events on offer, and theatre-going became one of the primary social activities available, with spectators freely eating and drinking in their seats, reading newspapers, and seeking out friends seated elsewhere in the auditorium during performances. Dan Rebelato records the wartime changes in the larger London theatres. Bringing the curtain time forward from 8.30 to 6 to allow for the Blitz curfew meant that people could go directly from work and use public transport to get home afterwards. The requirements of rationing meant that the exclusive convention of wearing easy evening dress fell into disuse. And as the war squeezed people's earnings, theatres lowered their prices. The Council for the Encouragement of Music and Art complemented this work with its tours to factories, canteens and workers' hostels, where they find audiences, most of whom had never seen a play before. Consequently, London wartime and post-war theatre began to see a younger and more broadly working-class audience than it had in previous decades. Rodney Mills speaks nostalgically, it is hard to describe to the young of today the feeling of optimism, of idealism in those post-war years. The high arts were to be accessible to everyone, to ordinary people, he says. This reinstatement of a mixed-class spectatorship revived the audience noise that had begun to fade away. This was, however, the last time European theatre saw a notable resuscitation of the noisy spectator. The post-war audience's rowdier reception, although a reversion to a historical norm, awakened class and generational anxieties in England. A Punch article from the 23rd of April 1952 sees an anonymous theatre-goer complaining about latecomers to the auditorium, quote, totally insensitive to the feelings of those beyond the curtain, and the talkers, the clappers and the coffers, the chronic programme rustler, the twitcher and the writher. I have never seen anyone personally writhe in the theatre, but we'll, we'll take his word for it. Steps were taken to silence the audience once again. The British Drama League sent major celebrities of the time out to lecture the public in new theatre etiquette. In their respective lectures in the series, both Richard Burton and Sybil Thorndike focused on instructing school children that it was no longer acceptable to consume food in the theatre in contrast to the habits of their parents. And I love these quotations. Sometimes I feel like spitting at the audience because of the noise made by unwrapping chocolates. And maybe slightly more honestly from Richard Burton, I love to eat chocolates when I'm in the audience, but I take it as a favour if the audience doesn't when I'm on stage. In July 1953, the Arts Theatre began displaying caricature postcards entitled To All Latecomers, signed by the Gentle Hints Department. In 1963, the Royal Festival Hall included the Plain Man's Guide to Coughing in their programme, and this is my favourite thing that I've ever found in an archive, <laughs> which instructed patrons on coughing with a cough during a performance. 
Spectators were advised to either muffle the cough by the discreet use of a handkerchief or suppress it entirely. Since a single unrestrained cough could, audience members were warned, effectively ruin the enjoyment of 3,000 listeners. The 1950s then saw a deliberate and concentrated move to silence the audience, the effect of which has lasted right up to our present period. Part two, intolerance and inaccessibility, the quiet audience. In distinction to the explicit 1950s instruction by theatre venues and professionals, today's regulating of audience behaviour has become primarily a matter of self-policing by the collective audience. With the exception of the usher's request to switch off mobile phones and the occasional stage door outburst from Benedict Cumberbatch, most audience etiquette is now enforced explicitly or passive-aggressively by other spectators, rather than through the theatre's authority figures. Modern audiences self-regulate by shaming those who break the ordained quiet, following what George Home Cook identifies as, quote, a collective as well as an individual sense of commitment, discipline and responsibility engendered by the act of attending theatre. Thus, while many spectators may willingly silence themselves in the theatre, such silence being their natural demeanour when paying attention, other individuals with noisier attentional responses find themselves monitored and indeed chastised by other spectators. And it's important, I think, that we recognise that attention looks different in different individuals here. We might recall Oliver Berkman casting a meaningful glance in the wrong direction. Similarly, the Times Theatre Cricket... Cricket? The Times Theatre critic Benedict Nightingale advises, quote, a schoolmarm stare and an English sniff, followed by a reproachful smile as an antidote to the disruptive spectators. The grassroots public movement Theatre Charter, now supported by celebrities such as Stephen Fry, likewise recommends that audience members police offending individuals themselves, encouraging observance in others, as they somewhat euphemistically put it. The modern theatre audience bears a distinct resemblance to Michel Foucault's docile bodies, regulated under their own surveillance. Well might Oliver Berkman worry that, quote, his feeling exhilarated while watching authoritarian ushers enforce the law may be how totalitarian regimes get off the ground. Institutional regulation swiftly becomes ingrained self-regulation. Of course, Many would argue that the noises being placed here are just the frankly unnecessary audience disruptions signalling a lack of attention in performance, and so deserving of censure. Theatre critic Maddie Costa disagrees. She observes that, for an art form so dedicated to thinking about human behaviour and interaction, theatre is remarkably bad at allowing its audiences to be human beings once they take their seats. While certain behaviours such as mobile phone use generally constitute clearly voluntary actions and thus a willful disregard for actors and fellow spectators, and even there we have medics on call, etc., people with, with family emergency, even that is, is too generalising, I think, but it's still voluntary. Involuntary actions are frequently met with the same immediate irritation, even outright denunciation by most audiences. The condemnation of the disruptive spectator has become so automatic that any infringement, even an involuntary one, is typically censured. By way of example, Costa notes, if you've had the bad luck to catch a cold or enter the auditorium with a cough, then you can expect to be pretty much despised, and disability is much more stigmatised. Crucially, while this aversion to willfully disruptive conduct is understandable and broadly defensible, it can be extremely difficult to distinguish between willed and unwilled noise in the auditorium. This is particularly the case given the broad range of unpredictable responses that can characterise the Tourette's tick or the PTSD symptomology, for example. 
zealous policing of audience noise, intended out of respect for actors and fellow patrons, too easily slips into self-righteous discrimination. The phenomenon has grown so pronounced as to sometimes discomfort the very performers whom the quiet audience convention is intended to benefit. Kelvin Ming Lo, acting in a revival production of The King and I at the Vivian Beaumont Theatre in 2015, took to Facebook to express his distress after audience members began shouting reprimands at a young spectator with autism who yelped during the performance, forcing his mother to remove the child from the theatre. Lowe lamented, when did we as theatre people, performers and audience members become so concerned with our own experience that we lose compassion for others? While compassion may not necessarily be the quality desired by those who would seek instead respect and tangible social change, Lowe's discomfort nevertheless pointed to an ingrained ableism in the theatrical context. A 2009 survey by The Times on audience experience raises similar concerns. Multiple complaints were recorded concerning the disruptive presence of disabled spectators in the auditorium, the commentary required by a blind patron at the Shaftesbury Theatre, for example, or the heavy breathing of a service dog at the London Opera. The demand for a quiet audience now seems to automatically outweigh the needs of individual disabled spectators in modern theatre. One particularly stark example of disabled intolerance to anything other than the obediently silent body came recently from Susan Elkin, writing in the stage in 2015. Elkin begins on an apparently inclusive note, declaring, theatre is for everyone. No one should ever be excluded. It's a universal medium. Almost immediately, however, she backtracks. But it isn't as simple as that, is it? She complains about a group of school children with unspecified learning difficulties whose rustling, banging and oral noise disrupted a performance she attended at the Polka Theatre. That the Polka Theatre specialises in creating inclusive environments for children with access issues seem not to dissuade Elkin. If their enjoyment cancels out someone else's, then surely it's a problem, she demands. Elkin's someone else here constructs an assumed able-bodied universal being. The universal identity implicitly, here and so often elsewhere, encompasses only the able-bodied. Theatre critic Lily Middleton, pleading for silent audiences, repeats this same ableist universalising, opining that theatre etiquette, quote, is an expectation of behaviour that respects the comfort and happiness of others. Again, Middleton here unironically demands that we respect others' comfort and happiness, while ignoring the comfort of the others who are not included in her concept of the universally able-bodied others. Elkin, in fact, explicitly acknowledges her able-bodied ideology, asking, how can we safeguard everyone's rights to inclusive theatre bearing in mind that everyone includes people who don't have special needs. She, su she suggests taking individuals with these special needs to performances where, quote, audience noise matters less, such as the pantomime. She is seemingly oblivious to the fact that the high sensory stimuli of the typical pantomime would prove catastrophically distressing to most children with autism, for whom the polka theatre specifically caters. Jess Tom, co-founder of the English theatre group Tourette's Hero, has first-hand experience of the access challenges posed by ableist expectations of quiet audience. Tom, who has Tourette's syndrome characterised by verbal and motor tics, says she began performing because being on stage offered her, quote, the one seat in the house I knew I wouldn't be asked to leave. She recalls attempting to see a performance at the Tricycle Theatre in London in 2011. Having struggled in the past with attending theatre, as she puts it, partly because of particular rules about public space and partly because of people's reactions to my tics, 
Tom contacted both the performer and the box office before she arrived, and the theatre staff announced to the audience at the beginning of the show that Tom was in the audience. Tom's most common verbal tick is not the comparatively rare coprolalia characterised by expletives, but the more innocuous word biscuit. Nevertheless, at intermission, the front of house manager asked Tom to move to the sound booth for the second half of the performance, following complaints about her behaviour. I find that a deeply humiliating and upsetting experience, and I cried in that booth a lot, Tom remembers. What hurt the most was that other people's right to be uninterrupted at the show had chumped my right to access the show, even though we had paid the same price for our tickets. Tom here engages in the same discourse of audience rights as invoked by Elkin, pointing out that the assumed right to a silent auditorium often works in direct opposition to the right to simply be able to access the theatre auditorium. Who and what behaviour is the contemporary British audience willing to allow into the communal performance space? Is part of the commercial theatre exchange a payment for the right to a silent spectator space? If so, must we assume that it is merely the need for a profit margin that has has conserved the traditional group audience, since most spectators would apparently prefer an individual, uninterrupted viewing of a live performance? Or, and this will be a central question of the third section, is the primary value of live theatre experience to be found elsewhere, and more squarely within the phenomenological experience of group spectatorship among a live embodied audience? We'll pick up on this question again later, For now, our discussion requires a fuller exploration of the phenomenon of the relaxed performance. Tom says that, following her evening at the Tricycle Theatre, she initially swore never to attend the theatre again. Instead, and luckily, she ultimately became an advocate for more inclusive performances, events and spaces. Her own highly successful show, Backstage in Biscuitland, focuses on her experience of Tourette syndrome. She also champions the relaxed performance, which, as she describes it, takes a relaxed approach to sound and movement coming from the audience, understands that an audience will include people who need to do things in various ways, and does not make assumptions about how an audience might be or watch a piece, and understands that focus and attention can look different to different types of bodies. Relaxed performances are a relatively modern concept, born out of sensory-friendly film screenings for artistic audiences in the 1990s, and introduced to British theatre via a nationwide pilot programme in 2012. The relaxed performance aims to render audience spaces more accessible to all spectators via measures such as allowing exit out of and re-entry into the auditorium throughout the performance, leaving the house lights on, designating a chill-out area in the foyer which spectators can use during the show, reducing sudden audio shifts and strobe lights, and training front-of-house staff and actors to accept higher levels of audience noise. Consequently, the relaxed performance rids theatre auditoriums of what Salat Gresset art manager of the British Council, calls the hushed reverence, the idea that you must be quiet, you must be still, that currently reigns in modern Western theatre. Fundamentally, relaxed performance opens doors to audiences who otherwise feel they're not welcome because of traditional theatre etiquette, Gresset continues. People who might find it difficult to adhere to those codes of behaviour are welcome to that show, whether that's due to learning difficulty or sensory or communication disorder, or Tourette syndrome, or perhaps somebody who has to pop up to go to the bathroom a couple of times an hour. The Relaxed Performance Project was the first widespread organisation of relaxed performances in theatre across the UK in 2012 and 2013, helping eight high-profile venues to host their first relaxed performance events, focusing on children's shows. Following the success of the Relaxed Performance Project, 
Several London theatres now advertise occasional relaxed performances. Finding such a show, however, can be difficult. In April this year, I contacted more than 40 major central theatres that emphasise their commitment to accessibility on their websites and in their printed literature. Virtually none could offer me a relaxed performance of an adult play. Indeed, Sadler's Wales offered me instead the very position that caused Jess Tom such distress, the sound and lighting booth, safely separated from the rest of the quiet audience. I could find only four indoor theatre relaxed performances in London, and I mean four individual performances for one-off dates throughout the entire run of these shows throughout 40 theatres. All four were musicals, three were aimed at children's audiences, one was sold out. All four relaxed performances available were single, one-off performances of long-running shows and scheduled as weekday matinees. Outdoor theatre and children-only theatre offers slightly more range. Although nothing was available for the month of April and May, Shakespeare's Globe and Polka Theatre each regularly schedule one relaxed performance every two to three months. These scheduling trends have been repeated across previous theatre seasons since 2012. Looking back, there were 15 relaxed performances offered in the entire Greater London area in the winter 2017 season, according to the official London Theatre's Access London Accessibility Guide. To put this in context, conservative estimates from the Society of London Theatre point at least 230 professional theatres in London. Again, all 15 were one-off performances of longer-running shows, and six were aimed at children or teenagers. Of the adult options, two were weekday matinee performances. Again, only Shakespeare's Globe offered evening or weekend relaxed performances of shows targeted at adults. Even these two relatively small samples indicate how difficult it is to actually find a relaxed performance of an adult-oriented show, particularly for a spectator with a 9-5 to weekday working schedule. Moreover, the predominance of shows for children in musicals demonstrates the severely limited perception of relaxed performance, which suffers from the assumption that only certain types of shows can be thus adapted. Venues and companies often assume that providing a relaxed performance will entail more compromises than it actually will. By contrast, many theatre directors and producers who have adapted plays for relaxed performance have observed that often very little of their staging needed to be altered to allow for new conditions, and many practitioners within the industry see the potential for all theatre plays to be produced as relaxed performance, regardless of content or formal qualities. Jess Tom vehemently disagrees with the recurrent argument that plays that rely heavily on dialogue or emotional intensity stand to suffer from a relaxed performance which risks obscuring crucial moments in performance. Her next project, which has just debuted at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival to fantastic reviews, is Samuel Beckett's Not I. Not I is a high-speed, high-precision monologue lasting between 9 and 18 minutes, depending, depending on performance style. I'm going to try to play you a very brief excerpt of Billy Whitelaw performing Not I in 1973, one of the first canonical versions to give you a sense of what this looks like. No, out into this world, this world, tiny little thing before it's time in a godfather. What? Girl, yes, tiny little girl, into this, out into this, before her time, godforsaken hole called, called. No matter, parents unknown, unheard of, he having vanished, thin air, no sooner buttoned up his breeches, she similarly, eight months later, almost at the tick. But you can hopefully see from that, this is demanding, it's word heavy. White Law is tied in place on this stage so that her mouth remains in the spotlight. It's certainly not a children's show, it's not a musical. It's not even going to work on, on the Globe's outdoor space. This is something completely different to, to what we think of as a relaxed performance. 
I'm now going to again try to play you a clip of Jess Tom performing Not I. And I've included some short segments in this video of her discussing her own work, which I think is important given how often the actual voices of individuals with, with disabilities are excluded from, from conversations about them. I'm Jess, I'm an artist and a writer and a performer with Tourette's syndrome, which is a neurological condition that means I make movements and noises. I can't control, called ticks, which is why I say biscuit so much, and seven years ago I co-founded Tourette's Hero, which and we celebrate the creativity of Tourette's syndrome and use it as a creative springboard and share it with as wide an audience as possible. Out! Into this world, this world, tiny little thing, before it's time, in a god for what? Girl, yes, tiny little girl, into this, out into this, before her time, godforsaken hole, called, called, biscuit, no matter, parents unknown, unheard of, he, having vanished, thin air, no sooner buttoned up his britches, she, similarly, eight months later, almost to the tick. The show, Biscuit, we're going to be taking to the Edinburgh Fringe. Biscuit is a neurodiverse presentation, Biscuit, of Samuel Beckett's short play, Not I. Uh, Biscuit, Not I is about a, a, a disembodied mouth in a dark space delivering a text really fast, really urgent, urgently, Biscuit. And traditionally, performers have had to be held still to have it performed so that a light needs to be shone just on the mouth. We are doing a rigorous presentation of, of this piece of work, but we're, I'm following the stage directions and staying true to them, Biscuit, but doing so, Biscuit, in a way that works for my body. Biscuit, so rather than be, Biscuit, be held still, Biscuit, which would be quite tricky for me, Biscuit, um, the light uh, will follow my mouth and be part of my, my costume. Biscuit, um, headshot biscuit. And I'm really interested in that approach because I think it says something more broadly that relates to disability, biscuit, and to difference. Biscuit, that to achieve the same things and to have equality of opportunity doesn't mean that we have to do everything in the same way. Tom calls Not I her difficult second album, a deliberately controversial choice of play intended to, quote, challenge that idea of what type of material suits a relaxed performance. We like the idea of taking one of the most intense and obtuse pieces of English theatre, it's not English, it's Irish, sticking point, and making that accessible at every level for performer and for audience. I want to show you, I want to show how you can have a relaxed performance of an intense theatrical piece of work without decreasing the intensity, but while creating a space where people are safe to see it. Moving now into the final section of our lecture, I want to use Jess Tom's testimony as a basis for thinking about how a relaxed performance might change the modern concept of the theatre for all spectators. Tom is convinced that the, rel the relaxed performance can pragmatically benefit a far wider range of individuals than is usually assumed. As she puts it, making theatre more inclusive makes it better for disabled and non-disabled people. Tom is speaking here to issues how, how being obliged to sit still and silently may hinder rather than aid many spectators' attention spans and if high wider disability representation in the community can benefit non-disabled individuals. These are interesting questions, but what I'm interested in here is the broader way of what we, how we might think of the relaxed performance as changing our concept of the theatre as an art medium. We've lost some focus, I think, on what the theatre offers as a specific medium, as a place where you sit down with live people and watch other live people in front of you. My very clever theatre module undergrad students are routinely stumped when I say, why has X written this as a play? 
not a novel. We don't think about theatre as a medium nearly as much as we could do. If we examine the participatory politics of the theatre through the lens of the quiet versus the relaxed audience, we gain a fresh perspective on theatre as an embodied and communal event and on its consequence value as a medium. Much scholarly criticism to date on the silencing of the modern audience has focused on how this silencing robbed the spectator of a form of communal and political engagement. In 1962, Elias Canetti noted that in place of active and communal involvement in modern European theatre, the, quote, stagnant crowds of newly silenced spectators felt only the slightest engagement with their fellow audience members. And this feeling, he complained, does not stir them too deeply and scarcely ever gives them a feeling of inner unity and togetherness. Richard Butch likewise notes the, quote, loss of public sphere vitality that accompanied the silencing of the modern audience. And Wilmer Souter agrees that, in being quieted, the modern audience's, quote, integral function as part of a public event was effaced. Such statements evoke the theatre's traditional role as a place of communion and of public communication, and the anxiety that its silencing decreases the opportunity for such interpersonal engagement. The medium of theatre, and this may sound obvious, but as spectators and, and academics, we forget this, is constructed on the basis of a live gathering of individuals, engaging with another individual or group of individuals on stage before them. It's collective and collaborative, and hence has traditionally been attached to the idea of community. Shared presence, complicity, interaction, felt communion. These are words that are integral to the value of the theatre. The quiet audience risks lessening this sense of communion, of shared presence. The silent and unmoving being, while occupying the same physical and temporal space as oneself, rarely offers the same potential opportunity for felt communion as does the actively engaged and sensorially perceptible individual. There can, of course, be moments of intensely felt communion too in the theatrical moment of utter silence and stillness generated by the action on stage, the voluntary breathless hush faced with a moment of stage magic. Yet such moments are lessened in value and in impact amid forced silence and stillness. And at its most extreme, the quiet audience can become an oppressive and indeed potentially depoliticised structure, turning the gathered spectatorship into a silent, undifferentiated, unspeaking mass. Jacques Ranciere famously argued against reading the theatre spectators passive simply because they were not engaged in visible action, as were the performers on stage. He notes that being a spectator is not some passive condition that we should transform into activity. It is our normal situation. This is only true to some extent. To sit in silence, wary of moving or commenting in case we disturb those around us, is not our normal situation nor is it typically the means by which we form social bonds or offer political commentary outside the theatre building. What makes it possible to pronounce the spectator seated in her place inactive, Ranciere queries? And I would answer, the conventions of the quiet audience in large part, that see spectators bound to obedient stillness and silence. I do not dispute Ranciere's valuable observation that the spectator also acts in how she observes, selects, compares, interprets, participates in the performance by refashioning it in her own way. But to limit the spectator to such silent inward action, as productive as such action may ultimately become, is to severely limit the potential of the theatrical medium. I see then a very immediate politics in the disruption of the quiet audience. Not only increased accessibility for neurodivergent spectators, but a training ground for the acceptance of the existence of others within our phenomenological sphere and for the possibility of being affected positively by these others' existence. 
George Home Cook notes that no unscripted noise in the theatre can never be fully contained. The theatre is, and always has been, a fundamentally noisy place, he remarks, whether that's because of noise of scenery moving, stage hands, traffic outside, audience movement. And, he continues, these are not necessarily technical or perceptual problems to be solved, but rather are to be savoured or even sought after. The theatrical medium, by its very nature, involves a prolonged encounter with the existence of other people. Thus, Homekirk argues, when we attend the theatre, we are necessarily required to make an effort, to do something, to stretch ourselves, since oral attention is an essentially dynamic phenomenon, an intersubjective act, a process of accommodation to the extraneous noises around us. Homekirk isn't talking here specifically about the quiet audience convention or the relaxed performance, but it is precisely this concept of theatre as a medium requiring us as spectators to stretch ourselves to accommodate that I highlight. Theatre's extraneous noises, Homekirk argues, make us increasingly aware of our own embodied position in the world. But I would also argue that such noises also make us aware of the relation of other human beings and their embodied existence to our own. We can align accepting non-stage noises in the theatre and accepting the existence of other human beings in proximity to us. That is, oral accommodation becomes linked to a mode of social and political accommodation to accommodate, quite simply, the presence of other agential human beings around us. The quiet audience attempts to negate this recognition of the existence of others within our own phenomenological sphere. The relaxed audience acknowledges and welcomes this recognition of others in our world. To attempt to contain or control which noises, which beings we will allow to affect us, is to resist the very basis and indeed value of theatre itself. Jill Dolan has conceived of what she calls utopian moments of transformation possible in the theatre, the, quote, feeling of affinity that allows spectators to experience themselves as part of the congenial public. Dolan emphasises the potential for such utopian moments to offer a, quote, new idea of how to be and how to be with each other beyond the theatre context, allowing audiences to reconsider and change the world outside the theatre to articulate a common, different future. Relaxed performance practices, I contend, hold precisely this possibility. Contemporary theatre practice has the potential to teach its spectators to engage more readily and more responsibly with the individuals in the auditorium and the world around them. And hopefully it's not too hard to see how learning to accommodate the other, the benevolent unfamiliar, the visible and encroaching stranger in our public spaces, offers a tangible benefit in our current political climate. To conclude then, the quiet audience is a relatively modern and carefully constructed phenomenon. The broad acceptance of the quiet audience etiquette to the point of Foucauldian self-policing by the zealous spectator has rendered the theatre space largely inaccessible to neurodiverse spectators who cannot guarantee a passively obedient body that will remain still and quiet throughout the duration of the performance. Relaxed performances have done productive and necessary work in disrupting the accepted conventions of the quiet audience and opening up modern theatre again to a wider audience. But it suffers from a narrow perspective of what it can and what it should be allowed to achieve. Exploring the experiences of the relaxed performance offers a new perspective on the value of theatre as a live, embodied and collective event, which permits felt communion with other individuals, spectators, as well as performers. By embracing the relaxed performance, contemporary theatre has the potential to re-establish and indeed enhance the theatrical medium's power to generate productive communion between spectators, 
and constantly breeding positive social change beyond as well as within the walls of the auditorium. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com. 